Thank you, Travis. Call your attention now to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose word is a gift of wisdom, give us a spirit now of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your word, and in the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope we have in you as our majestic and merciful God. Reveal yourself to us, but because we can know you only as you yourself reveal yourself to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Years ago, the late Dr. Lane Adams threw me a lifeline. I was a young believer, and I was struggling mightily to learn how to walk consistently with the Lord. I attended a conference where Dr. Adams was speaking, and I purchased a book that he had authored entitled, How Come It's Taking Me So Long to Get Better? That title resonated with my heart. And in that book, this Navy fighter pilot veteran, an evangelist, and at that time senior minister at Second Pres Memphis, compared growth to spiritual maturity to the warfare the U.S. Marines conducted in the Pacific during World War II. During the early stages of that conflict, the United States and her allies quickly lost one island after another to the enemy, so an island-hopping strategy was devised to protect Hawaii and Alaska and California from what was feared to be an imminent invasion. Enemy fortifications on important islands were detected by aerial reconnaissance, and then the softening up process began as 
Those fortifications were strafed by aircraft and pounded by offshore artillery from Navy ships. In time, the Marines would land, and they would establish a beachhead in formerly occupied territory, and the commanding officer would then radio back to headquarters, the Marines have landed and have the situation well in hand. That claim, from one perspective, seemed to be the height of presumption. The enemy was still deeply dug in, but from another perspective, it was not presumptuous at all because the Marines were never forced off an island during the entire duration of the war, despite appearances to the contrary. The CO knew that in time his forces would march forward to the center of that island and completely wrest it from enemy control. And so it is. For the Christian, Dr. Adams said, before coming to faith in Christ, a man or a woman or a young person is like enemy-held territory. Under the dominion of Satan and sin, but in the lives of those on whom God sets his love, he conducts a softening up process. Dr. Adams says, the softening up process in my own case was hastened by marital disaster and a lack of vocational direction. I've seen others softened up by economic distress, alcoholism, sexual problems, career disappointments, political fear, drug addiction, absence of life purpose, shattering guilt, prison terms, ruptured relationships, consuming hate, and even disillusionment over success. He says others have been softened up by the death of a loved one, while others have been touched by merely observing the transformation of another person being invaded by Jesus Christ. God uses great diversity in how he deals with us, but his softening up process leads to the point when he calls us into fellowship with himself through faith in Christ as Savior. And at that point, the formerly enemy-occupied territory of our minds and hearts is occupied by God the Holy Spirit. He makes us a beachhead of his powerful presence. We are now under God's dominion. Christ reigns in our lives, and as our commanding officer, God has our situation well in hand. Despite all appearances to the contrary, despite our weaknesses and our doubts and our struggles and our wanderings, He sets Himself to perfect the work of grace He's begun in us. We are secure in God's great love. Just as Paul promised in the beginning of this letter, we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him at His coming. God always completes the work He begins in a believer. And so armed with that assurance, we are empowered 
to move forward against our struggles with the enemy of sin to glory, trusting in God's all-sufficiency. Only in glory will God have completely eradicated the presence of the enemy from our lives. So in the meantime, in this world, we find ourselves engaged in unceasing spiritual conflict. And the conflict can be sharp, and it can be painful. It can be wearisome. So at that point, Paul, this veteran of many spiritual battles, helps us not to succumb to discouragement. Instead, he encourages us to seek God's help in prayer. One of the primary weapons God has given us possessing divine strength to destroy enemy strongholds. Often you and I learn to pray by listening to the prayers of mature saints. So in this passage, we are permitted to eavesdrop on Paul's model prayer for strength according to God's power and God's love and God's fullness. What do we see here? A prayer to know God's power. Our warfare is cosmic in nature. As we sang just a moment ago when we were singing Luther's great hymn, You and I War with Powers and Principalities in the Heavenly Realms. You and I are in need of power beyond our natural abilities. And God is pleased to grant us His power through prayer. I bow my knees before the Father, Paul says. And then as a matter of first importance in verses 16 and 17, he prays that God would grant divine power to his readers according to the Father's riches and through the Spirit's indwelling. The riches of the Father's grace empower us. Now, what are these riches that empower us? Well, Paul has spoken much already concerning these riches that the child of God is an heir to in this letter, but one blessing in particular he referred to back in chapter 1 is particularly, I think, empowering because there Paul spoke of the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, my friend, there is hardly a sweeter word in the believer's ear than God's forgiveness. I mean, is it really possible that sin such as mine can be forgiven altogether, completely, and forever? Hell is my well-deserved inheritance as a sinner. And there is no possibility of me escaping that if sin remains on me? Is it really possible that God, whose holiness is a consuming fire, might actually stoop to forgive the likes of me? Well, the Father promises it is so. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, Paul says in chapter 1. The Father's riches are revealed in the love that provided my redemption, even the crucifixion of His Son for my sins. 
On having received Jesus as the gift of the Father's love, I am now and I am forever forgiven by virtue of his substitutionary pains and death. And I say what joy this brings, what freedom this brings. And so I bow before the throne which pardons me and I grasp this cross that redeems me and I serve all my days this God who according to the riches of his grace has forgiven even me, even me. The riches of the Father's grace empower us and the presence of the Spirit within empowers us. Paul also prays that God would grant, quote, power through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul spoke in chapter 2 of the power that dwells in our inner being because the resurrection and the reigning power of Christ made us spiritually alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In that chapter, Paul compares this power residing in us who are the living stones of God's temple to the Shekinah glory that dwelt within the tabernacle of Israel. That is the spirit that dwells within us. And to possess such power within us is to have hope that sin, though it dwells within me as an enemy, no longer reigns as my Lord. And that assurance that the chains of my besetting sins have been broken by the Spirit's indwelling power brings now the confidence that real and deep and lasting change is possible. It is. This is liberating. Many years ago, a picture was taken of John D. Rockefeller, at that time one of the wealthiest men in the world, in his top hat, and tails placing a little coin in the palm of a young pauper. Rockefeller gave from his riches. Rockefeller gave out of his riches. But you see, we have as our Father one who has given us his power according to his riches according to the measure of his vast riches in glory, and not just out of his riches. You see, there's a sense in which the Ephesians already know this. Paul's not telling them anything new, and and there's a sense too in which we can read these things and we can say, well, I already know that. There's nothing new for me here, but you see what Paul does is repeat these truths because until these truths seek down into our souls and until we utterly embrace these truths as our new identity, what do we do? We rely on our own natural powers to combat sin and how very soon we find ourselves withering under the blows of the evil one and the remnants of sin within. But strange as it may sound, our realization of our natural powerlessness is the pathway now to divine power. In and of myself, I'm powerless. But you see, as I, as I plead God's promises to me in prayer, I am an heir to the Father's riches, I am indwelt by the Spirit's presence, That's my new identity now. My faith is rekindled and now I am empowered to fight again and prevail against the spiritual enemies both 
within me and outside of me. I am empowered by faith to fight to victory this war which the Father and the Spirit will not permit me to lose. According to the riches of the Father's grace and through the Spirit's presence within, we are more than conquerors through the power they give us. And the second thing we see is a prayer to know God's love. Here's something interesting. You may have picked this up, but after Paul prays for power according to the Father's riches and the Spirit's indwelling, he prays that his readers may know Christ indwelling their hearts in love. And I think that's interesting. What's interesting here is that Paul never separates the two persons of the Trinity, the Son and the Spirit, never separates them. To have the Spirit dwelling in us is to have the presence of Christ dwelling within us. And why is that? It's because one of the roles of the Spirit is not to call attention to himself, but instead to call our attention to Christ, to Christ and the blessings of our salvation in him. The Spirit's role is not to direct attention to himself. You may remember in the upper room on that night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed and promised that he would Send the Holy Spirit who will bear witness about me. In St. Louis years ago, I served at a church where great spotlights would illumine our great Gothic-style church building each night. The role of those spotlights was to shine a light on that church edifice. And similarly, the role of the Spirit is to shine a light on Jesus. It's to illumine our minds in understanding the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us in our Savior. Oh, my friends, by the illumination of the Spirit, you and I must grasp how secure God's love for us is. We must grasp how secure God's love for us is. In verse 17, Paul says we must grasp that we are rooted and grounded in God's love for us. God cannot, Paul cannot think of salvation in Christ without at the same time marveling in how secure we are in God's sovereign love. Child of God, how deep, how secure is God's love for you in Christ? Well, you are like a true tree that is rooted in God's electing and predestinating love. You are like a building grounded on the deepest possible foundation. God's electing love. If you spend any time at all in American cities that are large, you've probably seen great buildings being constructed. And whenever a large, tall building is being built, great attention is given to the foundation. And if you want a tall building to stand firm, you need to dig the deepest possible foundation for it. And so it is with our salvation. It's a very large work. It's infinitely tall. It reaches upward through the ages into eternity future. But for our salvation to be a heavenly skyscraper of such magnitude, it must have an equally deep foundation dug out in eternity past. In chapter 1, Paul said that every child of God has been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless 
has been predestined for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Paul says our security in God's love is as deep as God's eternal electing and predestinating love. Power over sin and power over the evil one rises as our faith grows in our security in God's eternal love. The Father will not let us go. He will keep us secure. And we must also grasp how great God's love for us is. Paul says that faith in the security of God's love is also tied to fathoming how great is God's love, fathoming the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, how can you and I grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love that is ours in Christ our Savior? How can we possibly measure it? I mean, can we talk about buckets of love? Can we talk about acres of love? Paul describes God's love by its breadth and length and height and depth. Very appropriately, I think, early commentators saw in those four dimensions a picture of Christ's cross. The absolute measure of God's love for undeserving sinners. We were alienated from God. We were sons of disobedience deserving God's just wrath. But God sent His Son into this world to be born of woman, And on the cross, God's righteous Son is our representative received the wrath the sons of disobedience deserve. And that was so that believers might enjoy the Father's love which Christ's obedience deserves. Have we grasped the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love revealed at Christ's cross? That's the gold standard. Christ's cross reveals a love of God which is wide enough to save a world of sinners. It's wide enough to embrace even you, my friend. I don't care. I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care how unworthy you feel you are of God's love. God's love is a gift to you. God's love is free to whoever will have it. If you haven't done so, embrace the Savior as the measure of God's love for His children. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus promises. And Christ's cross reveals the love of God which is long enough to last forever. Spurgeon said, it is long enough that your old age cannot exhaust it. So long... Your continual tribulation cannot quench it so long that your successive temptation shall not drain it, so long that like eternity itself it knows no bounds. Christ's cross reveals the love of God which is high enough to take every believer to heaven and deep enough to save the lowliest sinner who repents and believes. The love of God at Christ's cross is incomprehensible in its greatness and magnitude. And I realize that there are some who fear that preoccupation with the love of God that is ours in Christ will lead to license and the abandonment of God's standards. But you see, that's not the case for the children of God. As John said, 
We love because He first loved us. We need not simply to love God. We need to love God as His love for us creates a power within that drives out our love for sin. I remember in the backyard of our former home in Pennsylvania, an old oak tree would cling. It would just cling tenaciously to some of its old, dead, shriveled up brown leaves through the entire winter. And it was only until the warmth of spring would activate new life within that tree that this expulsive power would push off those old leaves. And as you and I fathom the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us revealed at the cross, the power of a new and growing love in our hearts pushes off our natural love for sin. You and I find ourselves loving our Savior more than we love our sin. Harry Ironside, the great old Bible teacher and evangelist correctly said, he said, the secret of holiness is heart occupation with Christ. As we gaze upon him, we become like him. You want to become like Christ? Well, let the loveliness of the risen Lord so fill the vision of your soul that all else is shut out, he says. And then the things of the flesh will shrivel up disappear and the things of the Spirit will become supreme in your life. And then finally, we have here a prayer to know God's fullness. All praise that his readers would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, we've encountered this subject of fullness a number of times before in Paul's letter. At the end of chapter 1, we saw the church as the fullness of him who fills all. Later, when we get to chapter 4, we will see that Paul speaks of the church growing to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul's not praying here that we will be deified, but, but he's praying rather that we may become a dwelling that is fit for Christ's residence. And because of that, correspondingly conform to Christ's likeness. My friends, we are a dwelling that must be fit for Christ's residence. Christ, by His Spirit, has taken up residence in us, and God is continually now renovating us into a residence that our Savior will be happy. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised by that. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. 
And then we must remember that we are residents that must reflect Christ's likeness. When people take up a long-term residence somewhere, have you noticed that their presence will eventually characterize that particular dwelling? I mean, it's why a house or apartment interiors are so unique. They reflect the tastes and the desires of the resident. Now, make no mistake, I mean, when the presence of Christ first moves into our lives, He finds us very much in need of repair. It takes a great deal of God's power and God's love to change us. And and that's why Paul prays that God may give His readers not just this creedal knowledge, not just this intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of His fullness, working now through His power, working through His love, so that His readers might be transformed into the likeness and character of the Savior who has taken up residence in their lives. What's the practical application of this hope of God's indwelling fullness? Well, as Paul says in chapter 4, we must now put off what belongs to our former way of life, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. And instead we must put on what belongs to the new life we have from God. By the indwelling Christ, we must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. God's power. God's love, God's fullness for us. Praise be to God for His grace to us in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we find ourselves as Your people involved in spiritual warfare with principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And it is wearisome at times. There are times when we lose a battle. But Father, we are grateful that you will not permit us to lose the war. We are grateful that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And so Father, We come to you and we plead these promises you have given to us once again. We ask that you would help us to find our identity now and who we are, Father, according to your riches of grace, who we are according to the Spirit's indwelling, and who we are now as Christ reigns in our hearts. Father, as we remember these wonderful truths, Bury them deep in our hearts. And as you do, rekindle now our faith in your power, in your love, in your fullness. And help us fight the good fight of faith to glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name.